Arthur Pink spiritual growth. We're on chapter. We're going to do chapter eight. It's promotion, and I don't know what number we're on nine or ten or something. We have now arrived at what is perhaps the most important aspect of our subject, not from the doctrinal side, but from the practical standpoint. It will avail us little to discover that there is manifold needs to be why Christians should grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord, as it would advantage us nothing to be quite clear in our minds as to what Christian progress is not and what it really consists of if we continue to be stationary. Well, it may awaken interest to learn that in certain fundamental respects, the growth of saints is like unto trees in their upward, downward, inward, and outward development. <coughs> Excuse me. Yet such information will prove of no real value unless the conscience be exercised thereby and there be definite effort on our part. Trees do not grow mechanically, but only as they derive nourishment from the soil and receive water and sunshine from above. It is instructed to find out there are different grades in God's family and to ascertain the characteristics of each. But of what service will they, that be to me unless I personally pass from spiritual infancy to youth and eventually become a father in Christ? While there is a close analogy between the manner of Christian's growth and that of a tree, it must not be lost sight of that there is a real and radical difference between them considered as entities. For we are moral agents, accountable creatures. Well, they are not so. And it is the exercise of our moral agency and the discharge of our responsibility which is now to engage our attention. Spiritual growth is very firm for being a fortuitous thing, which occurs irrespective of the use of suitable means. <coughs> Nor does it take place spontaneously apart from the availing of ourselves of our privileges and of the performance of our duty. Rather, it is the outcome of God's blessing upon our employment of the aids which he has provided and appointed, and the orderly development of the different graces he has bestowed upon us. As it is in the natural, so it is in the spiritual. There are certain things which foster, and there are other things which hinder spiritual progress, excuse me, Christian progress. And it is the lasting obligation of the saint to make full use of the former and to resolutely avoid the latter. Spiritual growth will not be promoted while we remain indifferent and inactive, but only as we give the utmost diligence to attaining unto the health of our souls. In seeking to treat the spiritual growth of a saint, it needs to be borne in mind that here, as everywhere in the Christian life, there are two different agents at work. Two entirely different principles are concerned. There is both a divine and human side to the subject, and there is much care and wisdom are required if a proper and spiritual prog proportion to be maintained. There are two agents. The two agents are God and the saint, and these two principles are the operations of divine sovereignty and the discharge of Christian responsibility. The difficulty involved, admittedly a real one, is to recognize the existence of each and to maintain a due balance between one or the other. There is a real danger that we become so occupied with the believer's duty and his diligence in using the proper means that he takes too much credit to himself and thereby robs God of his glory, as in a large measure do the Arminians. On the other hand, equally real is the danger that we dwell so exclusively on the divine operations and our dependence on the Spirit's quickening that a spirit of inertia seizes us and we become reduced to unaccountable non-entities, as in the case with fatalists and antinomians. From either extreme, we should earnestly seek deliverance. It is of vital importance at the outset that we recognize that God alone can make his people grow and prosper, and that we should be deeply and lastingly sensible of our entire dependency upon him. As we were unable to 
originate spiritual life in our souls, we are equally unable to preserve or increase the same. Deeply humbling, though that truth be in our hearts, yet the declarations of Holy Writ are too implicit and too numerous to leave us in the slightest doubt upon it. <coughs> Psalm 22:29. None can keep his own soul alive. Two are alike, naturally and spiritually positively. Oh, bless our God, which holdeth our soul in life. Psalm 68, 9. Thou maintainest my lot. Psalm 16, 5. Said Christ himself. Thy God hath commanded thy strength. Psalm 68, 28. For me is thy fruit. Hosea 14, 8. Thou hast wrought all our works in us. Isaiah 26, 12. All my springs are in thee. Psalm 87, 7. Without me you can do nothing, John 15, 5. Such flesh-withering statements as those cut away all ground of boasting and place the crown of honor where it rightfully belongs. <coughs> but there is another class of passages, equally plain and necessary, for us to receive at their face value and be duly influenced by them. Passages which emphasize the Christian's accountability, which inculcate the discharge of his responsibility, and which blame him when he fails thereby, therein. Passages which show that God dwells in his people, as, uh, deals with his people as rational creatures, setting before them their duty and requiring them upon pain of his displeasure and their great loss to diligently perform the same. He expressly exhorts them to grow in grace, 2 Peter 3.18. He bids them to lay aside the things which hinder and to desire the sincere milk of the word that they may grow thereby, 1 Peter 2, 1 and 2. So far from holding the Hebrews as being without excuse for not having grown, he blames them, 5.11-14. Though he has promised to do good unto his people, nevertheless the Lord has declared, I will yet for this be inquired of by the house of Israel to do it for them. Ezekiel 36.37. And hesitates not to say, you have not because you ask not, James 3.2. At first sight, it may appeal, appear impossible for us to show the meeting point between the operations of God's sovereignty and the discharge of Christian responsibility. And to define the relation of the latter to the former and the manner of their interworking. Had we, not been, had we been left to ourselves, it had been a task beyond the compass of human reason. But scripture solves the problem for us. And in terms so plainly that the simplest believer has no difficulty in understanding them. 1 Corinthians 15.10 By the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace which is bestowed upon me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. <clears throat> it is true that the apostle was treating more immediately with his ministerial career. Yet in its widest application it is obvious that the principles of the verse apply with equal propriety and force to the practical side of the Christian's life. Evidenced by the Lord's people in all ages appropriating to themselves its first and last clauses. But equally important and pertinent is that which comes in between them. In some passages, the grace of God signifies his eternal goodwill unto his people. In others, it connotes rather the effect of this favor, of his favor. The grace which he bestows upon them and infuses into them, and as in, but unto every one of us is given according to the measure of gift of Christ, Ephesians 4, 7. Christ is full of grace and truth, and his fullness we have received, and grace for grace, John 1, 14 and 16. Just as sin is a powerful principle working within the natural man, inclining him to evil, so at regeneration God's elect have communicated to their souls divine grace, which acts as a powerful principle working within them and inclining them unto holiness. Thomas Manton says, Grace is nothing else but an introduction of the virtues of God into the soul. 
end of quote. The principle of grace which is imparted to us at the new birth is what is so often termed the new nature in the Christian, and is designated the spirit because born of the spirit, John 3, 6, and being spiritual and holy, it is opposed to indwelling sin called the flesh, Galatians 5, 17. And that in turn is opposing the workings of sin of the lust of the flesh, the one being contrary to the other. The principle of grace, or new nature, which is bestowed on the saint, is, is but a creature. And though intrinsically holy, it is entirely dependent upon its author for strength and growth. And thus we must distinguish between the principle of grace and fresh supplies of grace for its invigoration and development. <clears throat> we may liken the newborn babe and the young Christian substantially to a full-rigged yacht. Though its sails be set, it is incapable of movement until the wind blows. The Christian is responsible to spread its sails and look for God for a breeze from heaven. But until the wind stirs, John 3, 8, he will make no progress. To drop the figure and come to the reality, what was just been said receives illustration in the apostolic benediction, wherein Paul so uniformly prayed for the saints, Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, or as Peter expresses it, Grace and peace be multiplied unto you. For nothing less than grace multiplied will enable any Christian to grow and thrive. We distinguish then not only between the eternal good, will, and the favor of God to his people, Ephesians 1, 4, and 5, and the effect or fruit of it, in the actual infusion of his grace, Ephesians 4, 7, or bestowal of an active principle of holiness, but we must also recognize the difference between that principle and the daily renewing of it. 2 Corinthians 4, 16, or the energizing of it by the influences of the Holy Spirit, which we deserve not. Though that new nature be a spiritual and holy one, which disposes, disposes its possessor under the pleasure pleasing of God, yet it has no sufficiency in itself to produce the fruits of holiness. Said the psalmist, 119.5, O that my ways were directed to keep thy statutes. Such a desire proceeded from the principle of grace, but having not the power in itself, it needed additional divine enablement to carry it out. So again, verse 25, Quicken thou me according to thy word. The sparks of grace into the ashes of the flesh need flaming into a blaze. The life of grace can only be carried on by complete dependence upon God and receiving from him a fresh supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Philippians 1.19 he must depend upon Christ for strength, ability to repent. All evangelical duties are done in his strength. Christ must give us soft hearts, hearts that, will re that are repentant, and must teach them by his spirit before they will repent. Except ye smite these rocks, they will yield no water. No tears for sin, except he break those hearts, they will not bleed. We may, know, we may, may as well melt a flint or turn a stone into flesh as repent of our own strength. It is far above the power of nature, nay, most contrary to it. How can we hate sin which naturally we love above all? Mourn for that which we most delight. Forsake that which is as dear to ourselves, so dear to ourselves. It is the almighty power of Christ which can only do this. We must rely on, seek to him for it. Lamentations 5.21 The same applies just as true to faith, hope, love, patience, the exercising of, and all of the Christian graces. Only as we strengthen, we are strengthened by the, which might, with might by the Spirit, by, in the inner man, are we enabled to be fruitful branches under the vine. In the final analysis, the spiritual growth of the Christian turns upon the grace which he continues to receive from God, nor is the measure obtained determined by anything in or of us. Since it is by grace, its author dispenses it according to his own sovereign determination. It is God which worketh in both you to will and to do his good pleasure. 
Philippians 2.13. It is God that giveth the increase, 1 Corinthians 3.7. To some an increase of faith and wisdom, to others of love and meekness, to yet others of comfort and peace, to yet others strength and victory, dividing to every man severally as he will, 1 Corinthians 12.11. Our concern and cooperation is equally due to enabling grace. For of ourselves, we are not sufficient to think anything is of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God, 2 Corinthians 3.5. All that is good in us is but a stream from the fountain of divine grace, and not but an abiding conviction of the fact that fact will keep us both humble and thankful. God, it is who inclines the mind and will into any good, who illuminates our understandings and draws out our affections unto things above. Even the means of grace are ineffectual unless God blesses them to us. Yet we sin if we are, use them not. But let us turn now to the divine human accountability side of the subject. We are required to grow in grace, 2 Peter 3.18. It is our responsibility to obtain more grace, James 4.6. It is the fault, that, and the fault is entirely ours if we do not, for God is of all grace, 1 Peter 5.10. is infinitely more willing to give than we are to receive. We are plainly exhorted, Matthew 7.7, 7, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. When the reference is to our obtaining fresh supplies of grace. No fatalistic apathy is inculcated there. No sitting still while our hands folded until God be pleased to re revive us. No, the very opposite. A definite asking and earnest seeking and impertinent knocking and the needed supply is obtained. We are expressly bidden to be more strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, 2 Timothy 2.1. We are freely invited to come boldly into the throne of grace, Hebrews 4.16. Pardoning grace, sanctifying grace, preserving grace, as well as grace to faithfully perform the common tasks of life. It is then both our privilege and duty to obtain fresh supplies of grace each day. Says the Apostle, let us have grace, Hebrews 12.28. But let us note the whole of that verse and observe the five things in it. Wherefore, an inference drawn from the context, we will receive a kingdom which cannot be moved. The privileges conferred upon us. Let us have grace, the enablement, whereby we may serve God acceptably, the task assigned to us, with reverence and godly fear, the manner of its performance. Such a duty as serving God acceptably we cannot possibly perform without special divine assistance. That assistance or strength is to be definitely, diligently, and constantly sought by us. To quote from John Owen on this verse, who was one of the very last to be accused of having a legalistic spirit. Quote, To have an increase of this grace is unto its degrees and measures, and to keep exercise in all the duties and services of God is a duty required of believers by virtue of all the gospel privileges which they receive from God. For herein consists the revenue of glory, which on their account he expecteth and requireth. End of quote. <coughs> Alas, that so many hyper-Calvinists have gone so far away from that holy balance. In order to obtain fresh supplies of grace, we need first to cultivate a sense of our own weakness, sinfulness, and insufficiency, fighting against every uprising of pride and self-confidence. Second, we need to be more diligent in giving the grace we already have, in using the grace we already have, remembering that the one who traded with his talents was he to whom additional ones were entrusted. Third, we need to supplicate God, or the same. Since Christ has taught us to ask our Father for our daily bread, how much more do we ask Him for our daily grace? There is a mediatorial fullness of grace in Christ for His people, and it is their privilege and duty to draw upon Him for the same. Let us therefore come boldly, freely and confidently under the throne of grace. The verb is not in the aorist, but in the present tense, signifying a continuous coming. Form the habit of so doing. 
It is both our privilege and duty to come, and to come boldly. The apostle did not say, none may come except those who do so confidently. Rather, he is showing from considerations in the context how we should come. If we cannot come with boldness, then let us come asking for it. We can advance nothing but the most idle and worthless excuses for our non-compliance with the blessed invitation of Hebrews 4.16 and our failure to find grace to help us in the time of need. Yea, <coughs> so pointless and vain are those excuses. It would be a waste of time to name and refute them. If we trace them back to their source, little as they may suspect, suspect it, it would be found that those excuses issue from a sense of self-sufficiency. As is clearly implied by those words, God resisteth the proud, but give grace to the humble. James 4, 6. God says to me, to, to you, let him take hold of my strength. Isaiah 27, 5. And again, seek the Lord and his strength. 1 Chronicles 16, 11. Therefore we should come before him with a prayer. Now therefore, O God, strengthen my heart. Nehemiah 6, 9. Pleading with his promise to strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Isaiah 41, 10. In another paragraph, we quoted the words, Thy God hath commanded thy strength. Yet so far from the psalmist feeling that relieved him of the responsibility in the matter, he cried, Strengthen, O God, that thou wouldst have wrought for us. 68.28 Now let us show that 1 Corinthians 15.10 reveals the meeting point between divine operations of grace and our improvement at at the same. First, by the grace of God I am what I am a brand plucked out of the fire, a new creature in Christ Jesus. Second, and the grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain. Contrast 2 Corinthians 6.1. But I labored more abundantly than they all. So far from grace encouraging unto listlessness, it stirred up to earnest endeavors and the improving of the same that the apostle was conscious of and shrank not from affirming his own diligence and zeal. Third, Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. He disowns any credit to himself and gives all the glory to God. It is our bounden duty to use the grace God has bestowed upon us, stirring up and exercising that holy principle. Yet this is not to puff us up, as the apostle said again. Colossians 1.29, Whereunto I labor, striving according to his working, which worketh in me mightily. He took no praise unto himself, but humbly ascribed, which was done, entire, which was done entirely unto the Lord. Fourth, thus grace is given the Christian to make use of, to labor with, in striving against sin, resisting the devil, running in the way of God's commandments. Yet in so laboring, he must be mindful of the source of him, of his spiritual energy. We can only work out what God has wrought in us, Philippians 2, 12 and 13. But remember, it is our duty to work out. Not only is the Christian responsible to seek and obtain more grace for himself, but it is also his duty to stimulate and increase the grace of his brethren. We read that sentence, and let it startle you out of your lethargy and your self-complaincy. It is of no avail to reply, I cannot increase my own stock of grace, let alone that of another. Scripture is plain on this point, Ephesians 4.29. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good, to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. Note well that verse in addressing, and address not specifically to the ministers of the gospel, but the rank and file of God's people. Yes, You may, you ought to be a helper, a strengthener, a builder up of your fellow saints. Grumbling about your lot, groaning over your state, will not be any stimulus to them. Rather, it will suppress and foster unbelief. But if you speak of the faithfulness of God, bear testimony to the sufficiency of Christ, recount his goodness and mercy to you. 
quote his promises, then your hearts, then your, will your hearts experience the truth of that proverb, iron sharpeneth iron. So is a man sharpened the countenance of his friend, 2717. And sad to say, a, a lot of my experience has been in, in, in even reformed churches, that instead of people sharpening each other, what people end up doing is gossiping about each other behind their back and putting each other down, and st which helps nobody, and of course is declared explicitly to be a sin. And uh, we see this on the internet where people gossip and slander other Christians on the internet. No, we're supposed to be helping each other. If there's a sin, there's a thing called Matthew 18. We follow Matthew 18. We go to them privately, personally, and we deal with it. But uh, sad to say, uh, people love to gossip. <clears throat> It has often been said that everything depends upon a right beginning. There's considerable force in that adage. If the foundation be faulty, the superstructure is certain to be insecure. If we take the wrong turn when starting out on a journey, the desired destination will not be reached unless the error be connect corrected. It is indeed of vital importance for the professing Christian to measure himself by the unerring standard of God's word and to make sure that his conversation was a sound one and that his house is being built upon the rock and not upon the sand. Multitudes are deceived, fatally deceived in this vital point. Proverbs 30, verse 12. There is a generation that are pure in their own eyes, and yet is not washed from their filthiness. Therefore we are God's children, expressly bidden, examine yourselves whether you are in the faith, prove your own selves. 2 Corinthians 15, 5. I mean, 13, 5. Nor is that to be done in any half-hearted way. 2 Peter 1, 10. Give diligence to make your calling and election sure is our bounden duty. Prove all things. Take nothing for granted. Give not yourselves the benefit of any doubt, but verify your profession and certify your conversion. Rest not satisfied until you have a clear and reliable evidence that you are indeed a new creature in Christ Jesus. Then heed the exhortation that follows. Prove all things. Hold fast that which is good. 1 Thessalonians 5.21 That is no needless caution, but one which is incumbent upon us to take to heart. There is that still within you which is opposed to the truth, yea, which loves a lie. Moreover, you will encounter fierce opposition from without and be tempted to forsake the stand you ta have taken. More subtle still will be the evil example of lax professors who will laugh at your strictness and seek to drag you down to their level. For these and other reasons, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things that we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip, Hebrews 2.1 that at any time intimates we must constantly be on our guard against such a calumnity. Hebrews 10.23 Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised, and therefore we should be faithful in performing. See to it that you hide not your light under a bushel. Be not ashamed of your Christian uniform, but wear it on all occasions. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works. Be not a compromiser and a temporizer, be out and out for Christ. Revelation 3, 3, Remember, therefore, how thou hast received and heard. And hold fast. If your conversion was a saving one, you have received that which is infinitely more precious than silver and gold. Then prize it as such and cling tenaciously to it. Hold fast the things of God in your memory by frequent meditation therein. Keep them warm in your affections and inviolate in your conscience. Revelation 3.11, hold fast that which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. If you have by grace bought the truth, see to it that you sell it not. 
Proverbs 23, 23. Be unflinching in your maintenance of it and unswerving in your devotedness to Christ and what he has entrusted to you. Thus, it is not only necessary that we begin aright, but it is equally essential that we continue aright. John 8, 31. If you continue in my word, then you are my disciples indeed. A persevering attendance on Christ's instructions is the best proof of, our reality, of the reality of our profession. Only by a steady faith in the person and work of Christ, a firm reliance on his promises, and regular obedience to his precepts, notwithstanding all opposition from the flesh, the world, and the devil, do we approve ourselves to be his genuine prove our, approve ourselves to be his genuine disciples. John fifty nine. As the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. Continue ye in my love. Continue in the believing enjoyment of it. And how is it to be accomplished? Why? By refraining from those things which would grieve that love, by doing those things which could conduce to a fuller manifestation thereof. Nor is such counsel in the least degree legalistic, as our Lord's very next words show. If you can meet my commandments, you shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Verse 10. <coughs> it is perfectly true that if a soul has been regenerated by the Spirit of God, that he will lay hold on his way. Yet it is equally true that holding on our way is the evidence of proof of our regeneration, and that if we do not do so, then we only deceive ourselves that we suppose we are regenerated. The fact that God has promised to perform or complete the good work which has begun in any of us people does not render it needless for them to perform and complete the work which he has assigned them. Not only do the apostles think or act, not so do the apostles think or act, Paul and Barnabas spake to their followers, persuading them to continue in the grace of God, Acts 13.43, which we understand to signify that they exhorted them not to be discouraged by the opposition they met with from the ungodly, <coughs> nor allow the ragings of the indwelling sin to becloud their apprehension of the divine faith, but rather to go on counting upon the superabounding of God's grace, and for them to more and more prove its sufficiency. So, too, we find these same apostles going on to other places, confirming the souls of the disciples and exhorting them to continue in the faith, and that we must, through much tribulations, enter into the kingdom of God, Acts 14.22. Very far were they from believing in the mechanical idea of once saved, always saved, which is now so rife. They insisted on the needs be for the discharge of the Christian's responsibility, and were faithful in warning him of both the difficulties and perils of the path, he must steadfastly pursue if he is to enter heaven. Yea, they hesitated not to say unto the saints that they would be presented unblameable and unreprovable in God's sight. If ye continue in the faith grounded and settled and not moved away from the hope of the gospel. Colossians 1.23 So to the exhorted them, continue in prayer and watch in the same with thanksgiving. Colossians 4.2 Watch against disinclination to prayer. Be not discouraged if the answer be delayed. Be persistent and importunate. Be thankful for past and present mercies and expect in a future ones. The Christian then is to continue along the same lines as he began. As you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. Colossians 2.6. Observe well where the emphasis is placed. It is not Christ Jesus the Savior or Redeemer, but Christ Jesus the Lord. In order to receive Christ Jesus as the Lord, it is necessary for you to forsake all that was opposed to him. Isaiah 55, 7. Continue thus, and not turn again to folly. Psalm 85, 8. It was required that you throw down the weapons of your warfare against him and be reconciled to him. Then take them not up again, and keep thyself from idols. 1 John 5, 20. It was by surrendering yourself to his righteous claims and giving to him the throne of your heart 
then suffer not other lords to have dominion over you. Isaiah 26, 13. But yield yourself unto God as one that is alive from the dead. Romans 6, 13. As Romaine pointed out, he must be received always as, he's received, as he was received more, once. There is no change of the object, and there must be no change in us. Be willing, yea, glad for him to rule over you. But let us take note of another word in that verse. As you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. Here, as in many passages in the epistles, the Christian life is likened unto a walk, which denotes action, movement in the forward direction. We are not only required to hold fast, which we have, and to continue as we began, but we must advance and make steady progress. The narrow way has to be traveled if life is to be entered into. There has to be a forgetting of those things which are behind, no complacent contentment with any previous attainment, and a reaching forth unto those things which are before, pressing toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus, Philippians 3:14 and 15. There, the figure passes from walking to running, which is more strenuous and exacting. In Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, the Christian life is likened unto a race. And in 1 Corinthians 9, 24, we are reminded, they which run in a race run all, all, but one receiveth the prize, to which is added, so run that ye may obtain. In discussing the promotion of spiritual growth, we have dwelt only on general principles and those which immediately follow on the means of growth. We shall enter more into detail, but, what, but before turning to them, let us connect what has been pointed out in the above paragraphs with what we emphasized earlier in this chapter. They, they were said that in the final analysis, the spiritual growth of the Christian depends on the grace which is continued to receive from God. Now, it should at once be apparent to any renewed soul that while it is obviously his duty to hold fast what he has received from God, to continue in the path of holiness, yet to go forward therein, yet he will only be enabled to discharge those duties as he receives further supplies of grace, of strength and wisdom from above. Therefore, it is recorded for his encouragement, James 4, 6, God giveth more grace, giveth grace unto the humble. And the humble are those who feel their need, who are emptied of self-confidence and self-complacency, who come as beggars to receive favors. Second Peter 1, 2, grace and peace be multiplied unto you. In connection with the apostolic salutations, it needs to be borne in mind. First, there are very much more than pious forms of greeting. There are definite prayers on behalf of those to whom the epistles were addressed. Second, since such prayers were immediately and verbally inspired by the Holy Spirit, they most certainly contained requests for those things which were according to the divine will. Third, in supplicating God for what they did, the apostles set before their readers an example, teaching them what they most needed and what they should especially ask for. Fourth, thus Christians today have a sure index for their guidance and should be at no loss to decide whether they are, have, they are warranted in praying for such and such a spiritual blessing. Believers today may be fully assured that it is both their privilege and duty to seek from God not only an increase, but also a multiplication of grace which he has already bestowed upon them. The need for increased grace is real and imperative. An active nature such as one, uh, as man's, must grow either worse or better. And therefore, we should be equally concerned about the increase of grace as we should be cautious about the loss of grace. The Christian life is a pulling against the current of the flesh within and the world without. And they who row against the stream must needs ply their oars vigorously and continuously, or the force of the waters will carry them backward. If a man be toiling up a sandy hill, 
he will sink down if he does not go forward. And unless the Christian's affections be increasingly set upon objects above, then they will soon be immersed in the things of time and sense. Very solemn and searching is that warning of our Lord's, the man who did not improve his talent lost it. Matthew 25, 28. Many a Christian who once had zeal in the Lord's service and much joy in his soul have them no more. Yet still more solemn is to note that the call of let us go on unto perfection is at once followed by a description of the state of the doom of apostates. Hebrews 6, 1 and 6, 4. We're going to stop there. <clears throat> this is really good stuff. This chapter is especially good. And that's one of the hard things to understand about Scripture. God's, God's sovereignty. God is in control. All grace comes from God. We're totally dependent on the Holy Spirit. Without the Holy Spirit, we can do nothing. And then the human responsibility, you're responsible to pray. You're responsible to read your Bible. You're responsible to attend public worship. You're responsible to attend the means of grace and to apply them to the soul. We fight the flesh. We have an inner enemy. We fight the world. We have an outer enemy. We have to have be diligent. We have to follow these principles. But we'll stop there and we'll return next week. It's good stuff. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the ministry of our brother Pink. Lord, apply these words to our soul. Cause us to act upon them, to be diligent, to move forward on the narrow path, to obey your word, to pray for growth, to pray for help in these things, all important matters. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>